From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Rowie McCowan. This is Zoom Room. A youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. In this episode, we're taking a look at how pollutants in drinking water are affecting the health and well-being of communities in Alaska, and how these chemicals can stay in a person's body forever. At Me senior producer Chloe Chobel began her reporting in 2021 after being awarded a youth mini-grant from the Alaska Conservation Foundation. The youth mini-grant program aims to support youth-led projects that address conservation issues in Alaska. Chloe sought this funding after developing an interest and concern for Alaskans who may have been exposed to these chemicals through their drinking water. Here, with an episode based on Chobel's independent research, is At Me reporter Madison Knudsen. Gustavus is a quiet town in southeast Alaska, on the edge of Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. Gustavus is small, with a population of about 650 people. It's the kind of place where everybody knows everybody. There are no roads in or out of the community. It's 50 miles south of Alaska's capital, Juneau, just a hop, skip, and a jump away by boat or plane. If you're near a computer, go look up pictures of Glacier Bay. You'll see it's gorgeous. The town is surrounded by miles and miles of forest, and like a lot of places in Alaska, the wildlife and nature are connected. It's not surprising that their economy is based around national park services, tourism, and fishing. It's normal to run into a moose on your way to work or chase a bear out of your garden. Take it from Gustavus resident, Kelly McLaughlin. It's really, really green and lush, and there's wildlife everywhere. We previously had lots and lots of black bears. Brown bears have moved in in the last few years and kind of chased out the black bears. There's moose and wolves and coyotes and, you know, all of the other wildlife you'd expect, and birds and squirrels and whatnot. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, it, I mean, that's a very integral part of our, of our <laughs> life. McLaughlin has lived in Gustavus for 15 years. She has two kids, and she runs a coffee shop. No real farms except uh, there's, there's a one-off fit out at Rink Creek that I think would classify for that. They, they make their living growing vegetables and harvesting stuff and making produce out of them, like jams and kombuchas and things like that. And they sell a lot of vegetables, and they make the bulk of their living that way. The uh, proprietress of that place, she also makes her living as a, um, a masseuse and a um, herbal specialist. So that's a good example how people here usually have two, three irons in the fire like that to keep a family going. Greg Schrebler has lived in Gustavus for 50 years. He moved there for a job in park services, a ranger position in Glacier Bay. The move appealed to him because it reminded him of the Midwest. There was a lot of hunting, family, and overall subsistence lifestyle. It wasn't perfect, but it worked. The roads were so bad, there was only two phones in town. One was in the the post office in Gustavus, and one was in the in the park office. So so little traffic on the road that 
they, were, uh, they had to install a landline, just a farmer line, halfway between Gustavus and the airport because you could get in trouble, get bogged down in the road, and it could be hours, parts of a day before anybody would come by. So uh, it was very remote. In a place that is so beautiful with so much unfettered wilderness, it's hard to imagine that there's water contamination. In 2018, McLaughlin found out her well water was contaminated by dangerous toxic chemicals. The state of Alaska provided her and several other Gustavus residents with clean water. They brought like a Costco case of bottled water, like 16 ounce bottled waters for me to drink. (laughs) And I was like, no, (laughs) that's ridiculous. Take it away. Um, And and then they returned with the five gallon jugs, which seemed slightly less ridiculous. And um, that's what I used for two years. The chemicals found in McLaughlin's well are called polyfluoralkyl substances, or PFAS for short. They've been known as forever chemicals. They don't degrade in the environment. They don't degrade in our bodies. So they remain in the environment literally for hundreds of years. There's there's no known um, time frame for when these chemicals break down. They convert from one form to another, but they're all forms of these PFAS chemicals. That's Pamela Miller. Her background is in biology and marine science, and she's the executive director of Alaska Community Action on Toxics, also known as ACAT. It's an environmental health and justice organization based in Anchorage. She founded the organization in 1997. These chemicals are found in household appliances, in electronic production, water-resistant fabrics like rain jackets, umbrellas, and tents, and Teflon products like non-stick pots and pans. The second place these chemicals are found is in industrial firefighting foam. This foam is called AFFF, and it's a required substance on military bases in the U.S. to prevent fires on runways, and it's a requirement for all airports. These have been used primarily in Alaska, and it's the dispersive use of these fluorinated firefighting foams at airports and military sites that has resulted in serious contamination of drinking water sources of of communities from the North Slope all the way down to Southeast Alaska. Forever chemicals found in AFFF is the main way groundwater is getting poisoned. They're not used on things like forest fires or other types of fires. They're used only on oil and chemical fires. These chemicals originally came to Alaska through industrial and military sites. Well, I think it's, you know, maybe not well understood that Alaska has been a a site of great strategic importance to the U.S. military. So we have over 700 formerly and currently used defense sites that have hazardous waste ranging from heavy metals and massive fuel spills to solvents as well as persistent chemicals like PCBs and pesticides. And so we've mapped over 2,000 contaminated sites throughout Alaska, both military and industrial sites that continue to contaminate the land and the water uh, and the air of people around Alaska. The water that contaminated McLaughlin's well came from the Gustavus Airport.
Gustavus is not the only area in Alaska where a plume of contamination is located. These contaminated areas are generally found in and around military bases and airports. Because Alaska is located near Russia and Japan, many airports were constructed to provide strategic positioning during World War II. And they set up a series of airports throughout Alaska and then across the Bering Straits. And Gustavus was on that route. And also there were scheduled flights into Juneau from Seattle in those days. And Gustavus was one of the fall weather alternatives when you couldn't get into Juneau. So that's, those are the functions that early airport served. Residents use the word plume to describe the area in Gustavus that's affected by forever chemicals. Chemicals used at the airport affect the whole community. The bedrock isn't deep in Gustavus, and rainwater pushes chemicals through the soil and toward the city. And because the town's water supply runs off individual wells, these chemicals then seep into the drinking water. Whitney Rapp is a resident of Gustavus and has a background in biology, cartography, and landscape design. I think my nexus to the PFAS issue in Gustavus is knowing how water moves across our landscape and how um, contaminations are likely to keep moving in the plume. She estimates that a quarter to a third of homes are downhill from the airport, where most of the chemicals originate. Those property values um, may never be recovered. I mean, there are definitely people that will not consider purchasing a home in the perceived plume. You know, like another challenge that we face here is we are a very flat area. We have a lot of rain and we have all these drainage ditches and they get overgrown with vegetation and then the water flows and then people flood. So last year in the epic December flood, there was a quite a bit of flooding in town, which is not a great thing. But the knee-jerk reaction was we need to clean out all the airport ditches, but we've actually never tested how contaminated are all those ditches that have been draining the airport? PFAS have been found in the water in major U.S. cities like Miami, Philadelphia, and New Orleans. The contamination was found near airports and military bases. Airports in Europe and Australia now use fluorine-free alternatives because they recognize the long-term harm caused by these fluorinated firefighting foams. Though so much of the media coverage has been focused on larger cities, these contaminants are also found in rural communities like Gustavus. In our report shows that PFAS have been discovered at over 100 individual sites at 30 locations around Alaska and we believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg because many more sites where there is known or suspected PFAS use have, have not even been tested. That's Pamela Miller again. Miller has personal reasons for caring about toxins in the environment. She was born in the small town of Dover, Ohio, and just like McLaughlin and Gustavus, her family's health was affected in a big way by chemicals being released into a community. My family was very much affected by the chemical releases of this chemical facility and, and suffered health disparities such as cancers um, in my family as well as in the neighborhood where I lived, which was in fairly 
close proximity to this chemical manufacturing plant. And I became a biologist. I was really inspired by the work that my mom did as a nurse, but I was always just curious about, about ways that we really might protect not only the earth, but people's health and, and, and saw the injustice caused by a chemical corporation that made massive profits without really caring for the health of the people in the community. And that just seemed really fundamentally wrong to me. That history, with chemicals affecting the people close to her, led her to the work she's doing now with Forever Chemicals. And these are persistent, toxic chemicals that can bioaccumulate in the food web, in our bodies. They build up in the food chain. And because we're at the top of the food web, people are very highly exposed to these bioaccumulative chemicals. And they can cause very serious health problems at exceedingly low exposure levels. The potential health effects of PFAS are numerous. They can cause various forms of cancer, harm to our endocrine system, which affects our hormones, issues with the thyroid that can affect brain function and the nervous system. They can also be harmful to reproductive health and the development of children. A 2020 study by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, or NASM, found that chronic PFAS exposure in children is likely associated with medical concerns such as elevated blood cholesterol levels, slightly lowered birth weight, and reduced antibody response to certain vaccines and infections. And some of the studies have shown definitively that exposure to PFAS can cause children to suffer immune system suppression so much so that vaccines are rendered ineffective. So this this is an important consideration in this time of COVID because if if these chemicals suppress our immune system, we're gonna be more vulnerable to um, infectious diseases, including things like COVID-19. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, hang on. All right, sorry about that. No, it's totally okay. Um, was that your kid? <laughs> yes, yep. She's with her grandma, and they went and got a bunch of toads and wanted to show me the toads. Oh. <laughs> like little tiny baby, baby toads. When Kelly McLaughlin realized she had dangerous chemicals in her backyard, she was immediately worried about the potential health effects, especially for her children, one of which was a newborn at the time. It may be possible for children to be exposed in utero during pregnancy, according to information released by the EPA. A NASM study states that children are more vulnerable to environmental pollutants like PFAS than adults for the simple fact that they crawl on floors and put things in their mouths. They also have increased exposure due to their lower body weight. They drink more water, eat more food, and breathe more oxygen per pound of body weight than adults. Children have developing organ systems and longer lifespans during which toxic effects might manifest. Infants also ingest breast milk from their mothers or formula made with water. When the mother's blood or the water contains PFAS, 
the children are at risk of contamination. McLaughlin decided to get her breast milk tested. It cost her about $1,200 for the test. So I had to really scrape it together, and I was really hoping that um, DHSS would like come to their senses and the state might reimburse me for that or something. But I just I really needed to know um, for my, you know, my daughter's safety, basically. Nigel Sharp is a co-founder and CEO of Aquaga. Aquaga studies the chemical breakdown of forever chemicals and how they can be removed from our environment. Part of their work involves establishing how PFAS are measured in the bloodstream. So right now, um, the health advisories put a lot of the um, uh, PFAS concerns in the sort of part per trillion range. And to give you some context of what a part per trillion looks like, we're talking about something like uh, a teaspoon of this stuff in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools is currently where the sort of you know, health regulations are. In June 2022, the EPA released an interim health advisory because research has indicated that levels of contamination at which negative health effects from some PFAS could occur are lower than previously understood. The interim updated health advisories for PFOA and PFOS are 0.004 parts per trillion and 0.02 parts per trillion, respectively. Based on Sharp's measurements, that's a fraction of a teaspoon in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. That might not sound like much, but that's what research is indicating about the impacts trace amounts of PFAS can have on human health. The recommendation is that more than this small amount may have negative health consequences. The State of Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities posts regular updates from the EPA regarding PFAS online, and the state indicates department support for the EPA's efforts to address PFAS and reduce Alaskans' exposure to these chemicals is also stated on their website. The advisory amounts for children are much lower. When McLaughlin got the results of her blood test, she determined that she had five times the national average of forever chemicals in her system. Not only are these chemicals affecting humans, they're affecting the wildlife too. Yeah, and then we also have had moose and bear tests um, tested, and it definitely the PFAS seems to concentrate in the liver of the animals, um, which I don't know if you're a liver person, but uh, <laughs> lots of us, you know, really appreciate the liver for all of the health benefits that it gives. We are still learning about how PFAS are affecting waterways. For instance, in August of 2022, a Florida international study found that oysters in three Florida communities were contaminated with potentially harmful amounts of forever chemicals. And a study released by the Environmental Research Journal indicates that locally caught fish across the United States likely contain forever chemicals. Back in 2021, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game issued an emergency order that limited fishing to catch and release in several bodies of water around the Isleson Air Force Base, which is located in Fairbanks. They found that the water was contaminated with forever chemicals. With modern conveniences come new problems. Greg Schwebler believes that our environment hasn't had the chance to catch up with the new chemicals we're introducing to it. We keep inventing all these cool things that are good for our life in this way and that, and uh, our ability to understand what they're doing to us and to the world usually lags way behind that. This is a perfect example. So I, uh, PFAS happens to be a particularly pernicious example that we've learned about, 
but I would imagine in your reporting you've run into a number of other examples of chemicals that we use that are very fraught for the environment and fraught for human health and animal health, things like that. And uh, our regulatory environment is way behind our ability to make them and uh, market this stuff. And that, that, that worries me a lot and makes me pay attention a lot. It's one thing to understand how forever chemicals are affecting Alaska's drinking water, but fixing the problem has its own set of challenges. As executive director of Alaska Community Action on Toxics, Miller sees how solutions can be found on the local level, but she says federal organizations need to act as well. The responsibility really falls upon the state, but it also falls upon the Environmental Protection Agency, who has failed to establish protective drinking water standards, and who does not provide proper oversight of the state to ensure that they're doing their job under the Clean Water Act and a lot of the other environmental laws that are in place to protect public health. Miller says the overall progress has been slow, even with implementing legislation that has already passed. But this doesn't deter legislators from working up new legislation in Washington, D.C. and in Alaska as well. Proposed state legislation has been designed to help get ahead on the problem of PFAS chemicals. Bills introduced have addressed testing water for contamination and identifying the responsibility to provide communities with clean water. In versions of the bill, first responders and individuals who were exposed to contaminated water could opt to have their blood monitored for up to three years. Senator Jesse Keel of District Q represents Juno, Haynes, Skagway, Quiquan, and Gustavus. He has sponsored numerous versions of proposed legislation to address the issue. Though the process of passing legislation is difficult, he keeps working toward his goal each session. And getting people clean drinking water when there's poison in theirs is just that important. Each version of the bill has provided instructions for airport firefighters to immediately begin using better alternative firefighting substances if they are identified in the future, and identifies responsibility for the safe disposal of firefighting substances that include PFAS chemicals. The newest version of the bill does not address cleanup of PFAS, but focuses on reducing the entry of new forever chemicals into the environment. In May 2023, Senator Keel told the Alaska Beacon that this isn't a cleanup bill. This is a no-new-spills bill. And while the legislature works on bills to address new PFAS entering the environment, the private sector is at work finding cleanup solutions. Here's Nigel Sharp again, the co-founder and CEO of Aquaga, a company that's exploring how forever chemicals can be removed from our environment. I think if society is really looking at this and going, okay, well, we recognize that these compounds are really useful, but we also recognize that they are having like detrimental effects, not only for you know, this generation, but for all the generations ahead, we have to sort of take that responsible step to say, look, we can't keep putting toxins out in the environment and, and doing that. Aguaga has validated that their technology works and are now trying to grow their company to a commercial scale to respond to the high demand for these services. So we take, um, we take PFAS, which is a wet waste. So um, imagine it a bit like, uh, 
it, you know, in some ways it's a bit like a soap, like a liquid soap. Um, and stuff, you know, naturally wants to foam by itself really, really quickly. That's really concentrated sort of PFAS contained wet waste. Um, we take that and we basically put it into a pressure cooker. A pressure cooker on steroids, he likes to call it. They use it to break down the carbon-fluorine bonds found in forever chemicals. That bond is one of the toughest bonds in organic chemistry to break down and remains in our bodies and in the environment. So we're able to take the fluorine and turn it into fluorides, which is the type of stuff you'd find in toothpaste. Um, we're able to take you know, some of the carbon and turn it into CO2, and then some of the other, uh, and then the rest of what comes out of this machine that we have is clean water. Sharp says Aquaga's testing indicates that more than 99% of PFAS are destroyed in treated water. Aquaga is still building the technology necessary to use this process on a scale that could even begin to clean up the vast amount of water sources that have already been contaminated by PFAS. It's a long way off for PFAS-eliminating technology, like what Aquaga is producing, to see an environmental change in Gustavus, but the town is still experiencing other changes. The population of Gustavus is increasing at an exponential rate. In 2010, it had 480 residents, and in 2020, it had 655. That's a population increase of 36.5%. That means more people are at risk. Between slow-moving legislation, airport construction, and identifying areas of contaminations, getting a foothold on this issue has proven difficult. But one thing remains. The health of Gustavus and its drinking water is still in jeopardy, along with other areas of the state. There are so many locations around Alaska. I mentioned that we have detected PFAS at over 100 individual sites in 30, around 30 locations in Alaska, but so many more have not even been tested. So it's, it's really most critical that the testing be done so that people can know whether they are being exposed to PFAS and then be provided with a safe drinking water source. I think like um, we won't know the extent of the damage to my children it will be sort of unfurled throughout their lifetime. Um, and that's really scary because it's always, it's not like something that I can, you know, give them extra kale and they'll be fine. <laughs> you know, like, it's, uh, it's sort of always looming. And there's lots of things that I can do to keep them healthy, but I don't have control over what they were already exposed to. In the the future is going to have to be dealt with. That, that there's a lot of things about the way the modern world is going that, that we have to become aware of and we have to be able to mitigate. In an email, Kathy Schlinghide, who works for Senator Keel on the PFAS bill, said that drinking water is very much a priority in the new bill being proposed. The legislation focuses on preventing new contamination from firefighting foam. The bill, which requires the state to accept proper disposal up to 40 gallons a year of PFAS foams, each from an individual or organization, passed in the Senate unanimously and moved on to the House, where the bill's provisions were merged into another House bill. That bill then passed 38-2 and was adopted. The section of the bill pertaining to PFAS-contaminated firefighting foams is set to take effect on January 1st, 
2024. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. This episode was written and reported by Chloe Chobel and Madison Knudsen, with mentorship and production support from Cody Liska, John Kendall, and Rosie Robards. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman, with additional music from Ormond DeLois and Tyler Felsen. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Conservation Foundation. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. ATME maintains editorial control of this podcast content. Thank you to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like ATME. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Roe McCowan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>